16 verses 5 onwards to 15. Please open up the word of the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. What a gift. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. That was excellent reading. Thank you. Let me pray. Um, I'm Sam, if we haven't met. Um, it's my privilege to get to preach on that passage this morning. So let's keep your Bibles open to that passage and I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word... We just don't want this um, time to be futile, a waste of time, and, it, and, and for it to be meaningful and purposeful and, and lasting effect, we need your grace, so needy of your grace, in particular the grace of the Holy Spirit to make our hearts alive to your word, to open our eyes, so often blind to the goodness and the glory that's in your word. And so please help us, we pray. Work in power by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we are drawing near to this, the end of this uh, precious section of Scripture that we've been in for uh, a while now. The night that Jesus spends with his disciples, his friends... And it is the night before he will die. So we'll complete, Lord willing, chapter 16 next week. And that will close out the instructions that Jesus is giving his disciples on this night. Chapter 17 will be Jesus turning to the Father in prayer. So we're at the very kind of end part, if you like. It's a, it's a night full of weight, full of gravity, but as you get to the end of it, I think it, that only increases. So Jesus has just now, if you remember two weeks ago, has been warning them of the persecution that is awaiting them after his departure, both in, in departing to the cross and departing 
to be with the Father again in glory, Jesus has told them the world will hate you. But also, do not fall away. And so that sobering passage ended with these words. So if you, if you have your Bibles, look just above chapter 16, verse 4, which leads into our passage. 16, verse 4, Jesus says this, But I've said these things to you, that when their hour, so their hour is the, the, the hour where they seem to have all the victory, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Then verse 4 continues, and this is how our passage picks up today. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, these things I'm saying now, I've not said these before. Um, these are unique. These are fresh revelation. I'm, I'm telling you these things now. Why? Because I haven't had to tell them to you before. I was with you. There's no reason for me to prepare you to be not with me while I am with you. But that's changing. I am going now. And so I'm saying these things. Things like what he's just said. That makes sense, doesn't it? You will be hated by the world. Well, he says that now because that has not been the case so far. While Jesus is with them, he is the focus of their persecution, of the persecution of the world. He is the focus of the hatred of the world. The disciples have not been, but Jesus is leaving. So what will the world do with its hatred towards Christ and the things of Christ and the ministry of Christ? Well, they will turn it toward those who have been united to Christ, like a vine with its branches, and those who continue the ministry of Christ, bearing witness to him. Before now, he hasn't had to say that. Before, now, before this moment, he has not had to prepare them and comfort them and instruct their souls, their troubled souls, at his leaving because he wasn't leaving. But now he is leaving, and so he offers them comfort. The next two verses then describe their response so far to these things I've been telling you, Jesus says. These things I've been telling you. Here's your response so far. So the end of verse 5 says how they have failed to respond. And, and verse 6 is how they have responded. Okay, see that? So the verse, verse 5 ends like this. And this is how they have not responded. They failed to respond. It says, and none of you asks me, where are you going? I'm saying I'm going, but none of you are asking me, where? Now that actually might feel strange at first when you hear that because you remember and you go, Wait a second, haven't they? So chapter 13, verse 36, earlier that evening, says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Or Thomas said something similar, chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So how could Jesus just now say, and none of you have asked me where I'm going? Well, a couple of thoughts. For one, I think we know that sometimes the question we are asking is not really the question that we are asking. You know what I mean? Um, that happens a fair bit, I think, in life. The kids ask me, is that dinner? They're not, they know full well that's dinner, right? Um, if I ask, how much did that haircut cost you? I'm not actually wanting to know the actual price of that haircut, right? The question is not the price of the haircut. The question is, you got ripped off, whatever it is. You know, like that, that's, that's the point. Or if I ask, where on earth did you get that idea from? You don't actually have to tell me where you got that idea from. I'm not actually wanting to know the origins of your idea. My question is, 
how good that idea is, right? So remember, Jesus knows what is inside a person. He knows the question behind the question, of course. And someone can ask, where are you going? Well, for other reasons than actually finding out where a person is going. I don't know if you've probably had that experience. That's, I think that's fairly common. You're hanging out with someone, particularly maybe your best friend or children, and you've been having a great time, and you finally say, okay, I've got to go now. If they then say, where are you going? They're not, probably not actually asking the precise location so they might understand where you're going. The question is, I don't, do you have to go? I would like you to stay. The concern is mainly not where you're going, but mainly what that's going to mean to me. And I think that's exactly how the disciples have been asking that question. We essentially don't want you to go. And Jesus says, you know I'm going, but you haven't actually been curious about where I'm going, genuinely curious about where I'm going. The irony, of course, is that if they had been, it would have helped their troubled souls. If they actually found out and got curious and found out where it is that Jesus is headed, they would have found out this is actually good for us. And it would have helped their souls. Like a parent might say when, when the child says, but where are you going? The parent might say, no, ask me genuinely. and Ask me that genuinely and I'll tell you and you'll realize this is actually really good for you. I'm going to get dessert or something. You know, I'm going to make some cookies, something like that. So how have they responded? That's how they failed to respond. How have they responded? Verse 6. But, so instead, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So instead of truly asking Jesus, tell me, tell us where you're going, sorrow has filled their hearts, their hearts, the very core of them. Driver's seat in their whole lives, Jesus says, It is filled with sorrow. Jesus is saying, I can see inside you. I can see what's going on, friends, disciples. I know that you're not just a little bit confused. You're not a little troubled, unsure, bit concerned. No, I can see and I understand your hearts have been filled with sorrow, grief. And some of us know what that, just can identify with that. These disciples are real people, hey, experiencing this in real time. And that's just an accurate, Jesus knows what's going on inside a person. And that's an accurate description. You have hearts that are filled with sorrow. And some of us have experienced that, maybe are experiencing that now. At the hearing of some particular news, your heart, you would say, your, my heart, my whole person was filled with sorrow. I had nothing but sorrow, racked with grief. I was empty apart from this, just pure sorrow. They feel this way because they do not understand, though, the great purposes of Jesus' departure. So that becomes the context for the rest of this passage. Here are disciples with sorrow that has filled their hearts. And Jesus' desire is to explain to them why they, they need not be that way. Indeed, they ought not be that way. And if they would understand what's going on, whilst their response right now is understandable, it's not right. It's incorrect. If they would understand the great purposes of Jesus' departure, namely in this passage, that the Holy Spirit is coming. 
So verse 7 begins like this. Jesus says, nevertheless. So just after saying, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So you can, he, he, you can see Jesus is trying to draw them in. Grab their attention. Whilst you have such grief in your heart, please, I'm telling you the truth, listen in. This is so important. I think he tells them, I'm telling you the truth, because the very next thing that he is about to say is going to be so hard for them to believe. Almost impossible. Laughable, if they weren't so sad already. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, so the departure of Jesus means the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the helper he's called, or the counselor or advocate. It's it's translated different ways. Now, the hard thing to believe about that is not that when Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit is coming. What's the hard part for them to believe uh, in that verse? It's this is to your advantage. You're better off. You'll be in actually a better situation than you are right now. And, And Jesus is with them bodily right now. And he's saying the Holy Spirit coming and being in you is going to be better than me bodily being right beside you right now. No wonder he had to say, I tell you the truth. That's not easy to believe. Jesus clearly has a very high pneumatology. Pneuma means spirit. Theology of the spirit. You couldn't espouse, I think, a higher view of the Holy Spirit. It it would be impossible, could you? To say that actually the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be better for you. Think about what that presumes about the Holy Spirit. It just assumes great things of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Because there you have, you have Jesus. And he's right there. He's bodily with them. And we've known from the very beginning of John's gospel who Jesus is. He is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. He created all things. He is the Word made flesh. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the eternal Son of God. And He's with them. They can see Him. With their physical eyes, they can see Him. With their physical ears, they can hear Him. With their physical hands, they can touch Him. And Jesus says, something better is coming than that. The Holy Spirit. He says... This is not a downgrade, of course. It's emphatically not, you're going to be worse off. He doesn't even say, it's going to be okay. It's kind of neutral, you know. Just kind of, it'll even itself out. I'm going, but the Holy Spirit's coming. He doesn't even say that. He says, this is better. This is for your advantage. The disciples, I think, would be incredulous about that. What on earth do you mean? Wouldn't you? I think you would be. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That is not possible. I think that's why Jesus had to preface it with, I'm telling you the truth. Do you believe it? Do you believe it even today? Do you believe that? Are you jealous of the disciples, you know? Or do you believe, no, to be in this moment in salvation history, to know and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit is actually better than if I was in Galilee. And I saw Jesus walking around. Don Carson writes this. He says, That same Jesus insists it is better to be alive now after the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
Right? We walk away just feeling the privilege of being alive now in, in, the, in the kind of this era of salvation history that we get to be alive today. Not all the saints throughout salvation history were alive in this time where we get to know and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit more privileged than if we actually saw Jesus alive walking around Galilee listening to him. Well, if the Holy Spirit is this great, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, notice that I said who, not what. He's not an it. He's not an impersonal kind of force. When we speak about the Holy Spirit, we are speaking about the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we read out earlier from our statement of faith a helpful summary of, of these things. It said, we've said this together. We believe in the unity of the Godhead, that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection in executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. You see, when we are speaking about the Holy Spirit, fundamentally we are speaking about God. We are speaking about God of the same essence as the Father and the Son, co-eternal, co-equal. Remember, equal in every, every divine perfection, equal, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. We are speaking about the third person of the Trinity. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and God is one. And since God is one, the reason, because as you, as you think about, okay, so how is this to your advantage? The reason can't be in the person of the Holy Spirit. Like, we prefer Him. Like we just like him more. You know, like if you have some people over and you go, well, actually, I prefer hanging out with them. And so we like, you know, I like the Holy Spirit a bit better. No, that can't be it. That would be to divide God. God is one. So where would the advantage then be? It has to be the ministry, not the person, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He, so, and that gets to why Jesus has to go before he comes, right? That's not like a metaphysical impossibility. You know, it's like, okay, they can't be in the same space at the same time, right? That's not the case. What it is, is because of the way that the salvation plan of God plays out in the ministry, the, the nature of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has to come after the Lord Jesus because his whole, po- his whole point, his whole purpose is to apply the finished work of Christ to the world, to the church. He's going to give glory to, Je- glory to Jesus Christ in his finished work on the cross, the resurrection, his ascension to glory, That can only happen after Jesus has gone. So, the rest of the passage is about this ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is for their advantage. We get two main things, okay? Two main things through this passage on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's the ministry of conviction about Jesus to the world. That's one. Second, he has the ministry of guiding the disciples into the truth about Jesus, okay? So first we have the ministry of conviction about Jesus to the world. This is, in fact, the only passage in all the Bible which speaks about the Holy Spirit's ministry, not to the people of God, but to the world. So verse 8 says this, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is His ministry to the world. This is His ministry to those who reject Jesus. Throughout John's Gospel, these have been the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish leaders, remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 11, we were set up for this. It says this, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Chapter 3, verse 19, The light has come into what? The world. He came into the world. 
And the people love the darkness rather than the light. And so to the world, the Holy Spirit brings a ministry, it says, of conviction. Now, what is that? The word is used 18 times in the New Testament, and every single time it is, to sh- it is the revelation of a person's sin so that, for the purpose that, it's a gracious revelation of, of the guilt of a person's sin so that they would repent. Let me give you a couple examples of the usage of this word for conviction. Matthew 18, verse 15. Do you remember this passage? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Same, same word. Tell him his fault. That's what the Holy Spirit will do to the world. It will show the world your fault, their fault. Or John 3.20, earlier on in John, same word is used at the end of this verse, says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Same word. So put it all together. The Holy Spirit will do that to the world. It will convict the world. That is, it will show the world its fault. Show the world that it was wrong. It will expose the world that it got everything wrong concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And each three of those get their own verse. So that's our next three verses, okay? Verse 9, first for sin, tells us why each of these. Verse 9, concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. So Spirit goes into the world to show the, to expose the world, to show it its fault, Concerning sin, why, why about sin? Well, fundamentally, they do not believe in me. Why does he go there? Well, because that is the fundamental sin. You cannot get a, a more vivid picture. The, the rebellion of, God, of, of, the, of the world against God is no more manifest than in the world's rejection of the Son of God, the revelation of God. They hated him, and that's the fundamental sin. Belief in Jesus, that's what he says. Right, let me say it again. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Do you remember why John wrote his book? Why he said he wrote his book? Chapter 20, verse 30. Yeah, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see? So, so unbelief is the fundamental sin of the world, which makes them guilty. Then belief... Well, that's the fundamental remedy to come out from under the judgment of God. To, that is the doorway into all the blessings of salvation. Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, life eternal. So the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just so we, we can see this from the start, is a gracious thing. It is a good thing to be convicted of unbelief in Jesus. It's not just to make people feel bad about themselves. It's for a purpose. What? So that it might engender belief, which means salvation, which means life in His name. So you see the Jesus-centeredness of all of this. The conviction of sin. Why? Because they didn't believe in His name. The Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction about the lack of belief in Jesus. It's Jesus-centered. Okay, next, verse 10. So that was concerning sin, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I just find this verse amazing. Because at first you wonder what is going on. You, get, you understand the first one? You're like, oh yeah, of course, convict the world of sin. We get that, like sin. But convict the world of righteousness? Isn't that a good thing? Don't we want to be righteous? Act rightly? Do what's right? Jesus says, 
I'm going to convict the world. I'm going to come and expose. I'm going to show the fault of the world's righteousness. You see, for the world to come to Jesus, they need to not only be convicted of their sin, they also need to be convicted of the bankruptcy of their own righteousness, that they can't actually save themselves, that their righteousness is, as Isaiah 64, 6 put it, filthy rags. So I think you think about it, and um, any person, I think this is so important, it's such a helpful thing to think about, because any person, I think, if you talk to them long enough, can, can admit, yeah, I, I'm guilty of some sin, right? But, um, that's not so hard. But what is harder, I think, is to convince someone they can't save themselves, I think conversations like go like this regularly. There, just a few weeks ago, there was a guy um, at our place and he was fixing the fence and it was just around Easter. And we were beginning to talk and I was talking about, oh, yeah, we've got some people from church that are coming over um, tomorrow for lunch. And he talked about, it just triggered things for him. He just talked about, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm actually really jealous of religious people. I'm jealous of what they have. You know, they have purpose. They have a reason for things and, and, and the, the kind of the happiness that they seem to have. I'm actually really jealous of, of, of religious people. Uh, but I just couldn't get there, he said. I just couldn't get there. I couldn't get all the way to believing in all, the, all that stuff. But he said, I'm not worried about it. Those were exact words. But I'm not worried because I've been a pretty good guy. I've been a pretty good guy. I do right by people. I always try to do the right thing. So it didn't take long for us to just talk about, okay, well, you know, your life has been like, and for him to go, well, actually, I'm, at times I've not been a very good guy. You know, I've, I've, I've got actually a fair bit of sin in my past, a, a lot of guilt. If God were to judge me, I would be guilty. So here is a person who is convicted of sin, but not yet of his righteousness. He thinks he will save himself. It's often said the hardest part of getting someone saved is getting them lost first. I was thinking about how Jesus challenged the righteousness, the so-called righteousness, and how we've seen that, um, how, he's, how he's tried to convict the world, the Jewish leaders in particular, of the, the, the inability, the insufficiency of their own kind of righteousness, you know, and the things they might say, well, we have the temple. You know, we have right, you know, we have the temple. Well, what did Jesus have to do? He went into the temple and flipped the tables and cleansed it. You know, you might say, oh, well, we have the Sabbath. We, keep, we are Sabbath keepers. Well, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and showed the bankruptcy of their Sabbath righteousness. We have the great Jewish feasts. We celebrate these things. We come to Jerusalem and we celebrate Passover, tabernacles. And Jesus will say, they're about me and you hate me. You reject me. Well, we have the law of Moses, Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 19, yet none of you keeps the law. This is the conversion story of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? To go from, I've got great righteousness, you know. So he, he lists his former righteousness in Philippians 3, remember? He lists it off. It's an impressive list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I mean, that's kind of what conversion is like, isn't it? It's a switch of, it's a reversal of things. At one, one, once upon a time, I was very impressed with my righteousness. I was not very impressed with Jesus and His goodness and His righteousness. That just gets flipped when, in conversion, isn't it? Now my righteousness doesn't seem so good. My best deeds, filthy rags. Oh, but the righteousness of Christ, I need that. His goodness. I need that. And in the gospel, that is imputed to us. Wow. See, the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Right? So the presence of Jesus had this kind of effect on the world that it, I think it shone a light. His holiness shone a light on the darkness of the righteousness of the world, just his presence, his being there, his words and his deeds. But he's going, so they won't be able to see him. The ministry of Jesus continues as the Holy Spirit shines that exact same light on the uselessness of the righteousness of the world. A huge part of why people do not come to the Lord is because they are convinced they have enough righteousness of their own. Then verse 11. Concerning judgment, it says, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit, again, will convict, show the fault, expose the world concerning its judgment of Jesus. The world judged Jesus in many ways, various ways. We've seen a few of them, haven't we? They've said, they said he's demon-possessed. You know, He's insane. He's a Sabbath-breaker. He's a blasphemer. But the next day, they're going to put him on a cross to execute him. And so this verse, I think, reveals an, another amazing irony. As they put Jesus to death, I mean, to the, the eyes of the whole world, it must seem like if you asked who's on trial here, you go, well, of course, it's Jesus. He's going before Pilate. Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. But who's on trial? It's Jesus. Right? The world is putting Jesus on trial. And they're finding him a blasphemer. And they'll kill him. This verse is saying, actually, that's the irony of it. It's exactly, it's exactly the opposite. And in a cosmic level, who's on trial? It's the world. It's the world. What will you do when God himself becomes a man? How will you treat him? How will you respond to the great and final revelation of God in the Son of God? Well, this is what you did. Their judgment of him will become his judgment on them. So the spirit coming to convict the world of judgment. Um, Kostenberger, Andreas Kostenberger, the commentator, says it's like a retrial on who Jesus is. See, the first time the world got it horribly wrong. They murdered the Son of God, right? They got it horribly wrong. But then comes the spirit and almost brings up a retrial. We'll have another look. Do you still find him like that? 
like post-cross and post-resurrection, try him again. I encourage you even now, you know, like some of us go, when I've tried the, this case, like I've come to the conclusion, it's not, it's, it's not for me. It's not. Well, retry it. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Will you reconsider? The Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Why? It says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Talking about Satan, of course. So I think it's an argument from greater to lesser. Again, Kostenberger writes this helpfully. He says, if the celestial ringleader of all evil is condemned, this also includes those who do his bidding, whether demons or human instruments. See, they followed his lie. They followed the lies of Satan, the, the, the power of this world, was it the ruler of this world. They followed his lies into believing that Jesus is no one, a blasphemer. Well, they will also follow him into his own judgment. So that's the first point. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world, one of conviction, one of showing the fault, exposing it of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. You got it all wrong. And again, just re- it's a gracious ministry. You actually can't come to salvation, to believe in Jesus, to be reconciled with God without those three things. And so Jesus says, this is to your advantage. The Holy Spirit will continue the work that I've begun now it won't be limited to the physical presence of Jesus, but the Spirit will work in the hearts of people throughout the world, wherever the gospel is preached. This is to your advantage. Second one, the ministry now of guiding the disciples into the truth about Jesus. This is amazing stuff. So verse 12 sets it up. Jesus says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Isn't that precious? I think it's a window into the heart of Christ is gentle, lowly, patient, kind, understanding, compassionate, all those words, heart of Christ. On this night, Jesus has been saying lots and lots of things for chapters now. And the kinds of things he's been saying are just, if we're honest, I mean, they're just deep, mysterious, glorious, troubling, comforting, all those things. And he's been speaking for a while. And he knows their hearts. He knows they're full of sorrow. Your hearts are full of sorrow. And they just do not have the capacity to take much more in. And he's not going to say much more, right? He's just going to say a few more words of comfort for their hearts. We'll look at that next week. And he's going to pray for them in chapter 17. And so Jesus kind of pauses in this moment. I think it's just so beautiful. He just turns to them and says, I understand. I understand. It's been a big night. And there are, I have so much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it right now. And it's a wonderful example to us, just as an aside. In our love for one another, our care for one another, our discipling of one another, our correcting of one another, our instructing one another. We have lots to consider as we do talk to one another, don't we? Of course, it has to be true. If what we say is true, it has to be in love. It has to be loving as well. Well, as well, you could ask the question, can they bear it right now? Are they able to hear it? If you're like me, sometimes you forget that piece, you know. I just get on, get on a roll and I've got things to say, you know, and I'm going to get it all out whether you're ready or not. Well, I'm not loving like Christ. God is patient with me, hey. You sometimes, you, have you ever wondered throughout your life, you're like, I wonder why he didn't teach me that earlier. Probably part of the reason is I couldn't bear it yet. 
You couldn't bear it yet. But he's patient. He's kind. This creates a tension in the verse, though. Do you see the tension in the verse? Jesus is saying, I have so many more things to tell you. You just can't bear it right now. So the tension is, well, what's going to happen to those things? Surely we want to know. Verse 13 answers, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. See, Jesus can be patient. He doesn't have to say everything tonight. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will guide them into truth. See what it says? All the truth. All the truth. Don't think like every single, you know, truth that's in the world, how to iron a shirt or, you know, or ancient things, riding a horse or something, you know. The Spirit's not doing all those, you know, teaching all those things. That wasn't that helpful. Teaching all those things. But He is teaching them all the things necessary concerning the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, right? The implications that flow from that. He will teach them all of that, all the things that can't, they can't bear to hear right now. The Spirit is coming and will reveal them to them. Amazing comfort, eh? See how verse 13 continues. It says, For he will not speak of his own authority, Spirit, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So just, just understand that the Holy Spirit is not like an innovator, an, an inventor of words. He's not his own authority. He speaks what he hears. Well, that is, a, that is a continuation of exactly what's going on when Jesus speaks as well, isn't it? Like, so there is unity in God. There is one God, one voice. When you hear the Son, you hear the Father. When you hear the Spirit, you hear the Father and the Son. When you hear the Father, you are hearing it through the Spirit. And so it is. Jesus has spoken like this. John 15. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. John 8, 26, I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. One voice, one God. So then the Spirit, who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, will speaks what He hears from the Son in this verse. It says, He will declare to you the things that are to come. I think that's talking about the ongoing realities, the ongoing implications of the, the ultimate thing that is to come that very next day. And the Holy Spirit will come later and He will show all the meaning, the purposes, the implications of this event. Literally, He's going to inspire these apostles to write Scripture. That's the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He'll reveal the doctrines of the gospel in greater depth. He'll reveal how they are to live in light of the gospel. Remember, that Paul often talks, you know, live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit. Reveals how God's people will live as one in churches together. He will come and reveal, fill His Spirit with power. Sorry, fill people with His Spirit, for power to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit will reveal that it's through suffering and through trials that we will inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are the things to come. He shows that Jesus will return one day, and He reminds us of that through His Word. That Jesus will return one day, and we must always be prepared. And on and on and on we can go. We literally have a New Testament because of the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit of the things to come.
the things that they cannot bear to hear right now. And Jesus isn't saying them right now. Not because he doesn't know all these things. But they're not ready. They're not ready. They can't bear it. But it wouldn't always be like that. Their hearts won't always be filled with sorrow. You realize they're going to see Jesus alive this Sunday, you know. So now the final verses give the ultimate purpose of everything we've seen so far. What is What holds all this together? What's the purpose? Verse 14 begins, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says, He will, he will glorify me. Why? Because He will essentially continue my ministry. So I actually think I would love this to be one of the main things that we all walk away with this morning, and that is the Jesus-centeredness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That would be a great win. That would be a glorious thing. It's been everywhere in this passage, hasn't it? The Jesus-centeredness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If He's going to convict the world, what is it going to be of? Well, sin. Why? Because they don't believe in Jesus. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. Why? Jesus is going back to the Father. That's why. He's going to convict the world of judgment. Why? Because they, they put him on trial and killed him. It's all about Jesus. If he's going to guide the disciples into truth, what is it? Jesus' words. I'll only speak what I hear from Jesus. I'm going to give him the words of Jesus. The whole Bible, you know, like that's the trick of having red letters for Jesus, right? It's like, no, not, not really. Like, it's all Jesus, the entire thing, because it's inspired by his spirit. So he gives glory. His ministry is fundamentally to glorify the Son of God, to glorify Jesus, not to glorify himself and not to glorify the person experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm honest, I think a lot, a lot of what passes for someone moving in the power of the Holy Spirit is not actually glorying Jesus so much as themselves. It's amazing to read all of this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then flip a bit further in the story and you get to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and to just see so much of what Jesus just said and just see it happen in narrative form, it really happens. The Spirit comes and Peter begins to preach. And what does he preach? Well, he's been guided into truth by the Holy Spirit. And so he teaches them how Jesus is the promised one of the Scriptures. He, how he holds all, all the promises of God throughout the Bible have been yes and amen. They're in, they're in Jesus. He's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Conviction to the world of their sin, righteousness and judgment. Does that happen? Yeah. Listen to Acts 2, 36. So Peter's preaching. He says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's that? Conviction of judgment. He goes on. It says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What's that? Conviction of righteousness. What do we do? We've got nothing we can do. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Sins. 
what's that? Conviction of sin. And then, and, then, and then Peter says this, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Spirit's already been at work in their lives, awakening, opening their eyes. And as they put their faith in Jesus, they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people were baptized, joined the church. I just wonder if the disciples had ringing in their ears. Man, Jesus said this was going to be to our advantage. This is really to our advantage. This is amazing. Our hearts did not have to be filled with sorrow. Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, Back in the first century, one had to go to Palestine in order to be with Jesus. But now, on the other side of Pentecost, Christ can be everywhere by His Spirit. We don't have to travel to Israel to be with Him or live in the mountains or light a candle to find Him. We can do better than walking with Him or seeing Him. He can dwell in us anywhere at any time. Praise God. Praise God for giving the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. How wonderful is the Holy Spirit? J.I. Packer made this point. It's powerful. Powerfully, I think, in his book called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He writes this. He says, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. It's literally, I was going to preach on this passage. There you go. Sure, it was a great sermon. And he says this seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the flood, he is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. Um, Graham Cole wrote a big book on the Holy Spirit. He called the final chapter of his book this, The Magnificence of Divine Selflessness. Love that. The magnificence of divine selflessness. He wrote this. In so many sections of Western societies, magnificence lies in high visibility, whether of talent or power or wealth. Paradoxically, however, in a world of self-promotion, the magnificence of the Spirit lies not in self-display, but in self-abnegation. The magnificence of the Spirit lies in His self-effacement or divine selflessness. For this reason, believers are rightly called Christians and not Numians. Numians being spirit, spiritians, something. The Spirit will be so glad that people who follow, are truly saved, are called Christians. Because why? Because it puts Christ at the center. Christ defines our very person. I've heard rumors going around from time to time 
that um, us Baptists do not know the Holy Spirit. I've heard that. I don't know if you've ever heard that. <laughs> that these are those churches where there is no life in the Spirit, <laughs> you know, um, that is that, you know, th- these churches are not filled with the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. I don't know if you've heard that. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I've heard that a few times. Um, how would we know? How would we know if the Spirit was at work amongst us? As a church, individually, how would we know? I think this passage is helpful. It would be a good thing to know. It would be sad if we were without the Spirit in here. Well, I think you would know, not primarily by looking for spectacular signs. Of course, Jesus says in Matthew 7, people did all kinds of signs, and he says, I did not know you. What would we look for? What would you see? I think this passage gives us the kind of primary things that you would see. You would see a people convicted and repentant of their sin, their failure at times to believe in Jesus. You would see a people convicted and repentant of their own righteousness, people who have not tried to save themselves but are throwing themselves on the mercy of Christ, putting their faith in His work and not our own. You would see a people convicted and repentant of their judgment concerning Jesus. They got it all wrong. People who sing words like, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. I need conviction and repentance about my judgment of the Lord Jesus. You would be sure that the Holy Spirit is at work here and in you if when you see Jesus, you see glory. You see glory in his person. You see glory in his teaching. You see glory in his spirit-inspired word. You see glory in his substitutionary death on the cross for us. You see glory in his resurrection. You see glory in the good news of the gospel. And you will have heard his call to come follow me. And you come and you follow. I see that here. So I'm thankful that the Spirit is here working all these things. We couldn't sing the first song together today without the Spirit. Do you remember? All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. No human heart does that without the work, the magnificent, glorious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we thank you and we pray for more. Let me pray.